turn in the ancient word uh, to 1 Peter, if you would, 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we'll be reading this morning verses 3 uh, through 9 as we continue our way uh, through this letter. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll read verses 3 uh, through 9, and this morning we'll be looking uh, carefully at verses 6 through 9. So this is the living and abiding Word of God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, You've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for ancient words ever true. And Lord, we know that you've given us this word of truth to sanctify us, as the Lord Jesus prayed. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. And so, Lord, we pray this morning that this truth would change us even today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, a rejoicing heart in the face of difficult circumstances is certainly the desire of every believer. Uh, A heart full of faith and uh, filled with, as the Bible describes, a joy inexpressible when facing inexpressible trials and temptations is the privilege, the Bible says, of the child of God. Joy inexpressible in the face of inexpressible trial. You know, sometimes, um, sometimes I am, I'm sure you are too, sometimes we're, we're, we're kind of startled, I think, and taken aback at the force of the words of Scripture. You ever find that? That there are times when you're reading the Scripture and the Scripture seems to, uh, seems to say something uh, so, uh, so wonderful or so powerful and uh, seems to have such a, a penetrating and, and heart-searching thrust uh, that we cannot help uh, but, be, but be moved by it. I believe that this passage is one of those times. And the reason, I think, 
uh, it has such power, this passage, is because, sadly, the modern-day church knows so little of its truth. The reason it has such force is perhaps because the modern-day church will not accept its message. The reason it has such penetrating and heart-searching thrust, perhaps, is because the modern-day church knows so little of the experience it speaks of. The fact of the matter is that we're living in a time when the church avoids the trials of the faith, uh, when we are far too easily offended. Here the Bible's talking about you know, inexpressible joy through inexpressible uh, trials, but we live in a time when the church avoids the trials of the faith, uh, when we're too easily offended, we think we suffer when someone disagrees with us online, or someone gives us a strange look and we think we're being persecuted. Um, faith today prefers to be, in large part, at least in our country, tried with uh, you know, pats on the back rather than tried with, with fire. Uh, it wants to see before it believes today. It wants the glory without the cross. It wants the salvation of souls without the death of sin. Uh, it wants justification without sanctification. It wants a, uh, an Ashley Furniture kind of salvation. You know, no cost, no money down, no commitment. You just take it away. Um, it wants the blessings of the church without commitment to the church. It wants instant, cost-free satisfaction without denial of self and submission to Christ as Lord and King. And it's no wonder that we know so little of the joy inexpressible, perhaps, of which Peter speaks. Well, here's the thing. Where does it come from? Surely we all would desire joy inexpressible to face inexpressible trial. So where does it come from, this joy inexpressible? Well, first of all, uh, the Apostle Peter makes clear that this joy inexpressible is rooted in the truth of Christian doctrine, rooted in the truth of what God has done in Christ. That's its root. There's no joy inexpressible for anybody if you're not rooted in the truth of Christian doctrine. In verses 3 through 5, we saw last week how the apostles sought to remind the Christian believers he was writing to of what they had been born to, all because, member of the great mercy of God. They'd been born, member uh, to a new life, which is characterized by a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They'd been born to a new inheritance. So rather than death as the wages of sin, they were born to an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance of eternal life reserved in heaven. And they'd been born to a new assurance so that when they stumbled, when they fell, when their knees grew weak in their heavenward journey along the road of life in this world, they needed to remember that they were kept by the power of God. Through faith, you see, and not their own power. Now, and all these things, you see, were theirs through faith, through trust in the Lord, faith in the Son of God, in whom they believed with all their heart and soul and mind and strength. All these things were theirs. It was the great declaration of the gospel, all things made new in Christ. Now, here's the thing. As Peter goes on in this letter, uh, that truth that we just talked about last week, affected their life, you see. 
It was not the kind of declaration, verses 3 to 5, that left them sitting on their hands or sleeping in the pews or in the chairs. It was not the kind of declaration that left them wondering, you know, you read 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, and you think to yourself, maybe, boy, that really has nothing to do with me. Uh, No, it was not the kind of declaration that left them in despair, left them discouraged, or left them in their sin, or left them indifferent and lovers of the world. No, no. This truth of the Christian faith moved them, Peter says, to rejoice. And so after declaring the truth, Peter assumes something here. He assumes this great result in verse 6. He says, in this, in this, you rejoice. You rejoice. Now let's stop right there. The word rejoice means be extremely joyful, glad. What the apostle is saying here is, for every Christian believer... The truth of the Christian faith, yes, this doctrine, this teaching, this instruction, which tells you what God has done, if you are a Christian believer, this truth will inevitably resonate within your heart and cause you to rejoice. And if you do not rejoice at these truths, there's a simple reason. You're not a Christian. You don't know Christ. Because the Apostle Peter is saying, well, this is what you've been born to, and in this, you rejoice. If you don't know anything of this joy, you don't believe. You might believe something, but you certainly don't believe that your life given to you by the great mercy and grace of God in and through Jesus Christ. You might believe something else, but you don't believe this, because in this you rejoice. Joy uh, means a deep and settled delight and gladness. Of heart. The Apostle Paul, in the letter to the Philippians, as you know, sometimes the letter to the Philippians called the, the epistle of, of joy, and so we'd expect Paul to be speaking about joy there. This is what he says, Philippians 1.17. He's talking about those who are preaching Christ, and um, they're proclaiming the gospel, but they're really out to get Paul, and they hate Paul, and, uh, but they're preaching the gospel, and uh, Paul says this, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only, says Paul, that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, he says, and I will rejoice. I will be extremely glad and delighted in heart, even when these folks are trying to get me in trouble, because Christ is proclaimed. Verse 25, same chapter, convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all. He says, I don't think I'm going to die. I think I'm going to go on living. I'm going to continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. God's going to leave me on this earth, I believe, says Paul, so that you might grow in in faith and also might grow in the joy of your faith, the joy of your faith. Chapter 217, he says this, even if I am poured out as a drink offering... That is, if, I, if I've, my life has to be sacrificed upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So even if I die, even if I have to give my all, even if I have to be poured out everything I have for the sake of the gospel, I still rejoice. And you rejoice with me. Have a deep 
uh, a deep gladness in your heart. So here's the thing. This truth that Peter's proclaiming in this opening section is meant to thrill the Christian heart. A sad truth about the Christian church today and believers in general, perhaps, is that we have somehow got it into our heads that Christian doctrine is dull and boring, and that Christian truth, you know, is somehow dispensable, as long as we just have the right, you know, kind of feelings or something like that. Somehow we've gotten into our heads, it doesn't really matter if the Word of God is true and what it teaches, as long as it makes me feel good or we live a good life or we're moral or something like that, that's the important thing. Somehow we've gotten it into our heads that we don't need to be all that bothered about the truth of the gospel as long as we're living happily with each other. What does it really matter if it's true, you know, that Jesus died and rose and ascended and that we're only, uh, we only have life because he causes us to be born again? What does that really matter? Well, the apostle tells us seemingly it's a matter of joy or despair. It's actually a matter of um, either extreme gladness. Remember, that's what the word rejoice means. It's either a matter of extreme gladness in the heart because of the truth or the passing imitation of gladness based on something else that won't last. True joy, joy inexpressible, will not come from error. This is what the Bible teaches. Joy inexpressible is not going to come from Hinduism or Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, Mormonism, New Age, mindfulness. That's a big thing here in our state the last couple of years. Meditation, yoga, or anything else. Joy inexpressible will not come from trying to live a good life, trying to earn a paycheck for the family, uh, get that promotion and do the best I can. Joy inexpressible will not come from hoping for the best when I die. I just hope to make it. Uh, no. Uh, it does not come from hoping that God will somehow look the other way when my sin comes into full view. Hoping my good deeds will outweigh my bad. Joy inexpressible does not come from being ignorant of the truth of the Christian faith. Joy inexpressible, the Bible says, is found in those who've heard and believed the truth. The truth about God, what God has done in Jesus Christ, reconciling the world to himself. The truth, as we've just heard, about new life that's ours, characterized by a living hope. Who's done it? Not you. God caused you to be born again. Uh, the truth that we have an inheritance that will never fade, kept in heaven for us. Uh, the truth that we are kept not by our pulling up our own bootstraps or something like that, going through the Christian life. We're kept by the very power of God, and we believe all that through faith. Then joy comes, you see. Joy inexpressible is rooted in the truth of Christian doctrine. In other words, friends, our feelings and emotions need to be in agreement with the truth we profess to believe. Did you know that? Do you know that God is not only after your mind? Do you know that you're more than a mind? More than a brain? Um, you are, right? God's after your mind. He's after your life, that is your will and how you live. He's after your heart. He's after your, your affections and your emotions. All these things belong to him. And where do those expressions or emotions of joy inexpressible come from, from being rooted 
in the truth. And that's the only way, only way it can come. So know this first of all, truth, truth, when rightly understood and embraced, the Bible says, is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. It masters us. It humbles us. It overwhelms us. And it helps us to see our true state in the presence of God. And it helps us to see the truth of His grace to undeserving sinners. And it helps us to see the provision in Jesus Christ, all according to His great mercy. And if truth does not have this effect upon us, something is wrong. In our culture, which has given up on truth, they have also unwittingly given up on Yes, that's right, joy. When you give up a belief in truth or absolute truth, the truth that God's given us in Christ, you give that up, you have unwittingly cut yourself off from ever experiencing true joy. And that is where our culture is today but not in the church, (laughs) right? Not in the church. We still believe in in truth, and we still believe that that truth moves us. We still believe that that truth of what God's done in Jesus Christ by his grace uh, uh, causes us to rejoice. An unfeeling Christian is surely a contradiction in terms. Uh, Neither can we say that some people are just naturally more joyful than others, and that's, you know, just not our temperament. You ever meet those kind of folks? They'll say, well, You know, I know I look miserable all the time. And I know when I speak, I seem miserable all the time. But it's just not my temperament to be joyful. Oh, yes, I believe the gospel. I'm very happy about it. Somewhere in there. But that I continue to be miserable, you're just going to have to take my word for it that I know the gospel. It's just not my temperament. That's, 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 that's. Oh, that's that's so ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We do have different temperaments, but the apostle here is talking about a spiritual reality, and the Holy Spirit does not have a different temperament in one believer and another. He is the Holy Spirit who produces the fruit of the Spirit. doesn't matter what your sinful temperament is. He's going to change it, you see, to bear the fruit of the Spirit in your life. So, God's people in Scripture don't merely profess a creed. They sigh and groan, they weep and wail, and they shout and cry aloud for joy. Isaiah cried out, woe is me, and the Apostle Paul spoke of his rejoicing continually. Joy inexpressible is rooted in the truth of Christian doctrine, and that means we need to fill ourselves with the truth. Did you know that whatever whatever you believe will bring you true joy and delight? Think about this. Whatever you believe at heart will bring you true joy and delight. You're going to stuff as much of it into your life as possible. Isn't that true? Whether it's, uh, you know, Netflix or video games or shopping or eating, whatever. If you believe that that activity or that whatever you're watching is going to bring you joy and delight, you're going to stuff as much of it into your life as possible. So if it's true that joy inexpressible comes from Christian truth, oh boy, you want to stuff as much of the Christian gospel 
and Christian truth into your heart and life as you possibly can. Joy inexpressible is rooted in the truth of Christian doctrine, and it's strengthened. It's strengthened through the trials of faith. Strengthened, not destroyed, built up, not torn down, purified and sanctified. And of course, the apostle uses the familiar image of gold tried in the fire. Notice again verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that, in order that, the tested genuineness, the reality of your faith, the truthness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, that though that faith, more precious than gold, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So here man's sufferings and trials are compared to the refiner's fire used in purifying precious metals. True faith, the Bible says, Peter says, is tested by trials. Its genuineness is tested, just as gold is proved by fire. You know, as the heat of fire separates the dross from the gold, you know, that dross rises to the top and then they, they, they sweep it off. All the impurities of the gold are swept away as it's heated in the fire so that you're left with, with, with true True gold. Now the Lord says, through Peter, that's what I do with your faith. For a true believer. Uh, and remember in this letter of Peter, we're going we're gonna to read about what they were facing. The hostility of the world, the culture around them, persecution for following Jesus. And so right at the beginning of the letter, the Lord says, while your faith is so precious, uh, remember that um, your faith is going to be tested. It's genuineness. And... Uh, uh, and so there's going to be, as it were, the, the heat of a fire that comes upon gold. But the purpose of that is, is that you would be to the praise and glory and honor of God. Because that, that testing is going is to take away all the dross in your life. All the, all the doubting and, and all the sin and all the ugliness of the sinful nature. And, and I'm going to work on you and I'm going I'm to purify you. Uh, so that when, when that day comes, uh, you'll be to the praise and glory and honor of God. That's what's going to happen. Faith is more valuable than gold which perishes. Spiritual gold, says the Bible, is far superior to material gold. And uh, if material gold is held as precious in the world in which we live, how much more precious to God is your faith which outlasts this present age? Now, there's a striking passage in the Old Testament book of the prophet Zechariah that speaks of this purifying fire of God. It's Zechariah 13. We won't go there. But in that passage, you read of a, a fountain of cleansing being opened to the house of David. You read about the smiting of the shepherd, the sheep being scattered, a picture of what will happen to Christ uh, as the one who's smitten. And then we read this in Zechariah 13. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And then the Lord says this, and I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. They will say, the Lord is my God. So this is what happens. Peter says the fire there is your trials are, are, are meant to refine your faith. To purify it, not to destroy it. 
The fire of God, the Bible says, brings out the precious quality of the genuine article. It's a purifying fire with a grand purpose. Faith is strengthened so that the people are able to cry out, the Lord is my God. Friends, gold is not tried or proved in order to destroy the gold or the silver, right? But to, but to purify it. What is destroyed is the dross. True faith is strengthened through trial. False faith is revealed for what it is through trial. False. This is what trials do, like sickness and COVID. You want to know what someone's really like? Well, you've been with them the last two years. How did we respond? The loss of a loved one. Oh, that'll test our faith. Financial ruin. Or being betrayed by someone we trusted. That will test the genuineness of our faith. And when their faith has stood the test of fire... God will be praised, he says, and honored and glorified when Jesus Christ appears as the judge of men and is able to proclaim, well done, good and faithful servant. A purified, strengthened faith results in God being glorified. Friends, the faith of God's people is precious, says Peter, more precious than gold. Gold, though useful and precious in this life, perishes, and you won't need gold in heaven. Uh, There's no Bitcoin in heaven. Uh, No checking accounts uh, or financial markets to be concerned about. You won't need to buy anything in heaven, and you certainly won't be able to buy your way into heaven. That's why faith is more precious than gold. And when you come to die, and when I come to die, you and I will not be gathering all our stuff our money and our bonds and our cash around my hospital bed to comfort me. Oh, my wallet. Mm. Oh, the, the market's doing so well today. I'll die tonight, but... No. You know, who I, you know, what, you know what I'm going to gather by God's grace? My family. And share maybe a hymn. And maybe they'll read the scripture to me. Because at that moment, oh yes, all of us will know that faith is more precious than gold. What matters eternally is your relationship to God. And nothing is more precious than faith in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, the thing is, Peter would have us say, do you believe that? Have you or are you teaching that to your children or your grandchildren There is nothing in this world more precious than faith in Christ. That's what you're saying to your children because you believe it. What would your friends or your kids say, Dad, is most precious to you? Because you can tell them whatever you want. But your wife and your children will know by your life what actually is most precious to you. 
Is it the Lord? Is it his worship? Is it faith in Jesus Christ? And because, friends, this faith is so precious, it needs to be purified. Remember Moses, when he's talking to God's people in Deuteronomy 8, says, remember you were walking in sandals and stuff, and you were lacking food and, and drink, and, um, and the Lord provided for you? There in Deuteronomy 8, Moses says, you know, the Lord did that to test the genuineness of your faith, to test where your heart actually was. And that's why James tells us, count it all joy, brethren, when you face trials of many kinds, because the Lord's at work there, bringing your, 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 your faith to completion, that you would not lack anything. The testing of your faith, he says, produces steadfastness. And Peter says the joy of the Christian believer is a joy that has come through the fiery trials of faith. So, inexpressible joy rooted in the truth of Christian doctrine. It's strengthened through trials because faith is more precious than gold. And this joy inexpressible, of course, is focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. At the appearing of Jesus Christ, we know the Bible says every man's faith will be adjudged for what it is, and it is this Jesus, listen to verse 8, though you've not seen him, can you relate? You love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and, says Peter, rejoice with joy. <laughs> what does that mean? And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter's saying something like, you know, it's getting on to lunchtime. And so he says, uh, you know, and you, and you hungered with hunger. He's like, what? Doesn't hungering mean to, um, you know, or uh, uh, you loved with love. What do you mean? Uh, aren't you saying the same thing? Well, yeah, he's, 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 he's got to emphasize, isn't he, the same thing. Uh, to rejoice again, to be extremely uh, glad Extremely joyful with joy. That is inexpressible and filled with glory. The word inexpressible literally means not able. Not able to be expressed with words. That's why some uh, Bible translations uh, translated unspeakable. You just, you just can't find the words. You've had that before. Someone maybe does something gracious for you and you just don't know what to say. Uh, the Christians that Peter was addressing, friends, were not obviously personal disciples of Jesus. They hadn't seen him walk on the earth, not heard his voice in a physical way any more than you and I have. They were converts of the apostles. Their love, says Peter, their love just like you. Their love for Jesus began and it continues without sight of him. Even now, when they expect his coming, they must still believe, like you and me, without seeing him. And their faith enables them to pass beyond their present sufferings to the joy which belongs to knowing and trusting and resting 
in Christ. They had their eyes focused on Jesus Christ, even though he wasn't physically present to them, as he's not physically present to us. But we can still have our eyes, the Bible says, focused on Jesus. And Peter says, language cannot fully express, really, the, the communion with God, which the believer of these truths enjoys. Paul speaks of a man, you know, elsewhere in the scripture, being caught up to paradise, remember, and hearing unspeakable words, which no one could repeat. It was so glorious. And Paul speaks of the fact that the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. That's what a believer's communion with God is like, unspeakable, inexpressible, because of the truth of God's grace in Jesus. A delight, a solid gladness, extreme gladness of heart in what God has done. Is that what my communion with God is like? Is that what your communion with God is like? Inexpressible joy, unspeakable, or can you describe your relationship with God very easily, very analytically, very coldly, maybe very simply? Are you a Christian? Yeah, I go to church every Sunday. Are you a Christian? Yeah, I've read the Bible, and um, yeah, I believe it's true. Are you a Christian? Well, I grew up in a, I grew up in a Christian home, and uh, America's Christian, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. Is that, is that <laughs> what our communion with God as Christians in America today is like, or is it inexpressible and unspeakable? This was the kind of unseen faith, friends, that characterizes those in Hebrews 11. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction, conviction of things not seen. In this passage, Peter must have had in mind the words of Jesus to Thomas, blessed are those like you and I who have not seen and yet have believed. And Peter's not talking, remember, about some kind of future joy. He says, now you can't see him, and yet now you are filled with joy. Inexpressible. And because our eyes of faith are focused on the Lord Jesus, friends, no matter, here's the thing, no matter what temptations may come, no matter what the world might throw at us, no matter what our culture might come up with next that they want to deny or cancel or uh, something about God's word that they can't stand, uh, it won't matter for you because the joy of your hope in Christ will not perish, though it's tested like gold in the fire. No matter what trial, what phone call, what test result, or what news flash. No, you, you're rooted in the truth. And uh, yes, trials will come. You know they're there to draw you closer to God. And you've got this... There's inexpressible joy because of what God has done out of his great mercy in Christ. Simply this, what Peter is saying here, friends, to Christians, is that their joy, your joy, that is extreme, you know, gladness of heart, is not dependent. It's not dependent 
on outward circumstances, but is entirely related to your attitude and heart relation toward Jesus Christ, you see. Because even though you haven't seen him, uh, you love him. Even though you haven't seen him, you believe in him and are filled with this inexpressible Joy, the heart that rests in Christ, friends, knows a kind of joy, Peter's saying, that is completely foreign, you see. Completely foreign to the temporary and fading joys of the world. And we've all been there. Pursuing, right, joys that don't last. Leave us sick in the morning or with a headache or feeling alone dirty, and lost. We've all pursued them. And they're all fading. They're all defiled. They're all temporary. But the joy of the Christian, you say, mm-mm, inexpressible, unspeakable, lasts forever. And our joy, says Peter, it's only increased mm, uh, when we remember that by faith we are obtaining the outcome or the goal of our faith, the salvation of our souls, that is our very self, <laughs> you know, everlasting life. With him, body and soul. So friends, the apostle is reminding us today of the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of God's mercy to us in Jesus Christ, is not a lifeless gospel. When the Holy Spirit takes this message of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and applies it to your heart so that you believe it and you're convicted about it, applies it to the heart of a man, woman, or child, this truth of that gospel gives life and energy and motivation and desire, and it gives inexpressible joy and power to live for God. In closing, listen to... The words of Jonathan Edwards, a Reformed pastor who wrote almost three centuries ago, he said this, Who will deny, you going to deny this? Who will deny that true religion consists in a great measure in vigorous and lively actings of the inclination and will of the soul or the fervent exercises of the heart? That religion, which God requires and will accept, does not consist in weak, dull, and lifeless wishes, raising us but a little above a state of indifference. God in his word greatly insists upon it, that we be in good earnest, fervent in the spirit, and our hearts vigorously engaged. If we be not in good earnest, and our wills and inclinations be not strongly exercised, we are nothing. This is what he says, the things of religion. And when he says religion, he's talking about the one true religion. The things of religion are so great that there can be no suitableness in the exercises of our hearts to their nature and importance unless they, our hearts, be lively, powerful. True religion, says Edwards, is ever more a powerful thing. And the power of it appears in the first place, in the inward exercises of it in the heart, you see. In this, 
you rejoice. Vigorous, lively, earnest friends. That's what the truth does to the Christian heart. Trials refine, purify that joy. And that joy is focused, of course, on the Lord Jesus Christ. Rooted in the truth, strengthened through trial, focused on the Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter and keeper of our faith. May that joy be ours. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth as it is in Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for a a Bible, 66 books of truth, page upon page, that reveal your power and glory, your might, your, your grace, and your great mercy to us in Jesus. Oh, Lord, we, like these folks who first received this letter, haven't seen Jesus, but we love him. We haven't seen Jesus, but but we believe in him. And so, Lord, we pray that because that's true, because our lives are, are rooted in this truth of your great mercy causing us to be born again, to new life and a new inheritance and a new assurance, all by the grace and mercy of God to us in Jesus, that because we believe these truths through faith, oh, Lord, you've given us a an unspeakable, inexpressible joy in our heart that the world, sin, and anything else can never take away. May it be true, Lord, of us today and that we would then go forth to live out of such joy. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.